Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine doctor. I get to consult people around the world via webcam and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, The Inflammation Spectrum, and Ketotarian. If you wanna learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, becoming a patient, we have actually brand new telehealth patient options open right now. And we have tons of free resources there for you as well. You can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And listeners of The Art of Being Well, if you haven't heard, I have a brand new book called Gut Feelings, Healing the Shame-Fueled Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel. So we're talking about how things like chronic stress and shame and trauma impacts our physical body, impacts things like a hypervigilant nervous system, chronic inflammation, impacting our gut health, Things like stress and trauma can be stored in our cells and even can be passed on through generations. That science is shocking, intergenerational trauma or transgenerational trauma. But then how physiological things like underlying gut problems and things like SIBO, chronic Lyme disease, mold toxicity, the physiological things that I measure on patients' labs, how those things impact how our brain works. Things like anxiety and depression and brain fog and fatigue. So it's called Gut Feelings. We're giving away tons of free stuff. When you pre-order the book right now, you get access to a three-week mastermind with myself and some colleagues and friends of mine like Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Caroline Leaf, Dr. Nicola Perra, the holistic psychologist who she also wrote the foreword to the book. So you get access to the, a three-week mastermind when the book comes out. It's only for people who pre-order. And also you get a sneak peek of the book right now. When you pre-order, you get some of the recipes in the book right now on your pre-order and tons of other free healthy stuff. So all that information about gut feelings, the pre-order campaign, it's at drwillcole.com. And we're also giving away free signed books when you rate and review The Art of Being Well on Apple Podcasts. So head on over to Apple Podcasts, tell us what you love about the podcast. And every month, no matter when you listen to this episode, 
my team and I will be randomly picking winners every month. And then I'll reach out to you. I'll ask which book you want me to sign and then I'll send it out to you. So you can do it two different ways. You can leave your Instagram handle in the Apple podcast review itself, or you can message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole. And every month, again, I'll be going through the Instagram messages with my team, as well as the Apple podcast reviews and randomly picking winners every single month. All right, let's get to today's guest. She is so brilliant. You're going to learn so much from her. She's a dear friend of mine. Her name is Maya Feller. Brooklyn-based Maya Feller is a nationally recognized registered dietitian nutritionist. She received her master's of science in clinical nutrition at New York University. Maya shares her approachable, real food-based solutions through regular speaking engagements, writing in national publications, and is a nutrition expert for many different outlets such as Good Morning America. And I freaking love her like a sister. The end. <laughs> Actually, it's not the end. It's just the beginning. This is Maya Feller's Art of Being Well. Maya, this is long overdue. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I've been such a fan of yours for years. I think during the pandemic, we've been on, we were on a few different panels. We do have a lot of parallel work. And now we have the same publishers as, as book. I feel like God's bringing us together in many ways. And I'm excited about that. 100%. I've been vibing off of your work recently. And I just appreciate how you're kind of asking folks who are engaging with you, the community, to really expand how they think about wellness and kind of the pillars that they look at in their life. And so much of what you've been putting out has been resonating with me in like a real deep way. So I appreciate you. you. Thank you. Likewise, likewise. I appreciate that. So let's talk about this beautiful book. I mean, for, it's beautiful. Like the words are beautiful. The, the concept is beautiful. The pictures are beautiful. The cover is beautiful. Let's talk about it. Eating from our roots. Tell us, like, I'm curious, just from a writing standpoint, a literary standpoint, how, what was the genesis behind the book? What, what were your first thoughts about it and how did it come to fruition? So, you know, it's really like I look back and I think, okay, well, what kind of shaped me into the dietitian that I am today? And I realized that like, A, a I took this really unconventional path to getting into nutrition. And so it makes sense that the way that I think about food is unconventional, right? So like many clinical dietitians kind of feel and, you know, like about a prescriptive way about nutrition. And I'm really not prescriptive in that clinical sense. I really believe in that bi-directional patient provider relationship. I really believe in the patient being the expert in their lived experience. I may be able to look at labs and understand them, which yes, I can. However, I don't know how the labs got that way. I have to listen to the patient. I have to take the whole environment into consideration. Mm -hmm. And so when I was approached to write a book, a cookbook, no less, I thought, well, I've got to go the unconventional route and I have to re-examine how we think about healthy, how we kind of categorize foods from around the globe, and then how we also take environment, access, all of the pillars that you talk about regularly, into consideration when we're looking at the health picture. So you you highlight 
food from around the world, different cultures. Can you go through like some of the cultures that you explore in the book and teach us the food from their culture? And through your research of the book and cultivating the content of the book, what was the most surprising culture that you maybe didn't know so much about that you really grew to appreciate through writing the book? So in the book, I start off sharing a little bit about, you know, kind of my story and with Afro-Caribbean roots, I absolutely take a look at foods from the African diaspora. I make my way around the world and all the places either I have a connection to or one of the seven chefs that I collaborated with have a connection to. And it was really important to me that, you know, I wasn't going to present any particular culture from a monolithic lens. Mm -hmm. And then I was going to say, listen, there's nuance. Like this one amazing food historian, Scott Barton, I remember interviewing him one day and he said to me, you know, Black food in the Northeast of the U.S. is totally different than Black food in the Pacific Southwest. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Just like Cuban food is really different in one person's home and you go four houses down and someone makes their beans in a different way. And so as I was researching, I was very clear to figure out, okay, well, here are tastes of what seems to be heritage or traditional with the understanding that you could walk into my kitchen and your kitchen and we'll both make eggs completely differently. Still eggs, but we'll maybe I'm putting turmeric and black pepper and cumin in mine and maybe someone's putting dill and sage in theirs, right? Still eggs two different ways. So that was really important to me as I was kind of making my way around the globe and thinking about the foods. The most surprising thing that I found when I was researching kind of migration, colonization, you know, trade was that there are so many flavors that move with individuals from one place or another and get infused into the place where they arrive. Mm. And so there are dishes that we think of as being North African, but they actually show up in parts of Latin America or the Caribbean, or dishes that we think of quintessentially, quote unquote, Mediterranean, that show up, you know, in like the Andes. And it's, I mean, I found that to be really incredible because it just shows that like tastes move with the human. Right. Oh my goodness. I'm thinking from a, you mentioned food history and the historical knowing migrations and colonizations, you said how that I never thought about it, how that really inspired you. Even look at the United States and around the United States. It is really beautiful to see that culture evolve over time, but still have its roots, right? When you look at your hair, Are you 100% happy? As a functional medicine doctor, I see people all the time struggling with thinning hair, weak hair, unhealthy hair, and they're looking for something natural and clean as a way to support healthy hair. Maybe you've tried every product under the sun, hoping each would help you improve your hair health and help you achieve your hair goals. Some tools that my patients have been loving is from Vegamore. Thanks to Vegamore, not only are they finally seeing results, but they are finally getting the hair they always wanted. And for my patients, I'm always recommending to support hair health from the outside in and the inside out. 
So with labs, I can look at underlying hormonal imbalances or nutrient deficiencies to address things from the inside out. And with some of Vegamore's amazing products, we can support their hair health from the outside in. Vegamore has something for everyone looking to improve their hair health. The GRO or Grow Revitalizing Shampoo and Conditioner Kit works together to create visibly thicker hair and improve hair from the roots. Just massage the shampoo into your scalp for 60 seconds and then follow up with conditioner. It's as simple as that. Again, my patients have been loving these products from Vegamore as a way to support their hair health from the outside in. It's so easy for them to integrate it into their hair care routine and the quality of the Vegamore products are unmatched. What I love about Vegamore is you can get healthy, beautiful looking hair without the use of harmful chemicals. So many different hair care products are filled with tons of chemicals I would never recommend to my patients or anybody listening to this podcast. All of Vegamore's products are cruelty-free and never contain parabens or hormones. With Vegamore, there's no risk when trying because they have a 90-day money-back guarantee but with 91% of customers saying they saw visibly thicker, healthier hair with Vegamore in just three months, you won't want to run out. Get the hair you've always wanted with Vegamore. Go to vegamore.com slash Cole and use code Cole to save 20% on your first order. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash Cole. That's vegamore.com slash Cole. Use code WillCole to save 20% at vegamore.com slash WillCole. It's something that I talk about on the podcast, and I'm excited to go even deeper in today's conversation. I actually had one of our patients talk about this with me, about sort of the problem that we have as far as representation within the wellness community of people of color feel like, okay, this isn't for me. This wellness thing is a white thing, or this wellness thing is sort of this elite thing that isn't for me. Can you talk about this? Because I know you talk about it within the book and without your work, just knowing your work. What's the problem here? So people maybe that are unaware of the problem can actually know what the issue is. And what are ways that we can be a solution for this issue? Yeah, I love that question. Thanks for asking. So it's a huge question and I'll give an answer, an answer that of course is from my lens, right? So it's just like my experience as, you know, a black woman RD. So of course it's from my lens and it's an answer that won't be a complete answer. And that's something that I've actually learned with all of my work in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging is that very often there's not like a neat little bow at the end of a sentence. And there are oftentimes more questions that we unearth as we go through the process. So when I'm looking at wellness and it's fascinating, well, you know this, but my mind is consistently blown. Like with the, oh my goodness. (laughs) Every time I start to look at these traditions from around the globe. Most recently, I was at a lunch and they were talking about kind of Icelandic culture and the culture of wellness there. Granted, it's a tiny place, 300,000 people, right? Really harsh environments, so no one's trying to conquer there at all. (laughs) However, many of their wellness practices have not changed for hundreds of years. There's a real use of hot and cold. And then if you go back and you look at indigenous practices in what is now called the United States, 
There's also a real history of using steam and then also outdoor nature. If you go and you take a look at practices throughout the African diaspora, there's also a real use of sitting in tents and using heat and steam as well. And so as I think about wellness, what I always like to remind people is when we look back at the old ways, there's actually many more connections as we look around the globe. And it's only the new wellness culture that is what's exclusive. <laughs> right? The stuff that has just been made up in the last hundred years, because even in the continental US, what we have deemed to be healthy has shifted. It wasn't until the 70s, and I want to be really careful here, but it wasn't until the 70s that we saw this rise in formula. Yes, people do need to use formula, so I respect that. However, there was a time when breastfeeding was absolutely natural. It was not something that was sexualized. It wasn't mm-hmm. something that was exoticized. It was just something that people did. Yeah. And so when I look and see this kind of shift in wellness culture, and interestingly enough, from my perspective, and what there are many, you know, I'd say researchers that agree with me, is that it's wellness culture is now from this lens but particularly of white Americana in the last 75 years, Mm -hmm. right? And so, and I'm careful when I say that, right? Because Mm -hmm. there are plenty of people, and remember I'm using Iceland. Actually, I have dear friends from Finland. Their culture is not included in that wellness culture either, right? And it's fascinating because it really does center kind of white American culture and then everybody else is the other. The challenge in this country is that we have this terrible history of marginalizing people who are not white Americans. And then we have this terrible set of social injustices and structural inequities that we deal with consistently. So now it becomes something that feels weaponized, right? Mm -hmm. And many people who are from racial and ethnic minority groups, or they identify as such, experience food apartheid, right? So now food is a weapon. We go from a farmer's market being a place where it's, you know, in theory, accessible to everyone, to only being in neighborhoods that have certain median incomes, right? And then we see neighborhoods that are historically marginalized and underfunded, having an overabundance of fast foods, dollar stores, and whether or not we want to say that, you know, people should have choices, those are the very foods that actually (laughs) cause systemic inflammation and, you know, increase chronic disease. And when people don't have personal choice about where they shop, then those are the places that they go because there is no choice. Mm -hmm. So it's this system, as you know, that's really set up so that wellness does feel exclusive. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you for unpacking that. And let's, I want to explore different facets that you, things that you brought up. First of all, as you were talking, I was thinking about so much of what is elitist maybe today, right? And, and centralized people don't realize. And I love even thinking about this through the lens of the title of your book, exploring our roots, that most of the things that we use in wellness today, when you look at African 
medicine and the origins of medicine and food or Egyptian traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic yes. medicine, yes. all these herbal botanical indigenous people in the United States. And it's, it's seen through the lens of sort of the glossy, whatever, social media, Instagram, but the roots are actually, people don't realize it's their ancestors' roots. And they need, and I hope through conversations like this and your book, people can start to reclaim what was theirs to begin with. Amen to that. It's so, I remember when I met my husband who was Swiss and I went up into the mountains of Switzerland and I was like, oh, these old leathery farmers are very <laughs> reminiscent of old leathery Caribbean farmers. I was like, oh, I was like, there's so much more here. They have been doing biodynamic farming and terracing and really taking care of the soil and thinking about water the same way that my family in the countryside of Togo in Trinidad have been doing, right? But mm -hmm. this is, we don't hear about it, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't hear about what the Swiss farmers are doing. We don't hear about what the Trinidadian farmers are doing. What we hear about is, and I promised myself I wouldn't go too far there, is like, you know, these mega farms in the U.S. And that's mm -hmm. really what's driving kind of how we think about and how we interact with food which also adds to the complication of like people like being so adamant about shifting what they eat. Yes, of course, we don't, I mean, listen, we don't want to engage in supporting these huge large scale farms that are pushing out family farmers. That's super clear. And then at the same time, we wanna make sure that there's accessible, affordable food for all people. You know what I mean? That's not, it's not exclusive to one group. I don't have the answer. Mm -hmm. I'm working through it. I'm thinking about it. But yeah. you know what I mean? There's a lot there. Yeah. And I think part of the solution, at least in my experience, seeing patients and you seeing patients is one person at a time empowering them yeah. and showing them a different way. Because we don't know. And people, when you empower people, they can start making changes. Then you see their entire family changes and their friend yes. group changes. Like, oh, I want to get on this too. I didn't know this was possible. Like, And I really feel like just through the advent of podcast and sort of the internet in many ways has done a lot to democratize and decentralize this information more than it. I mean, we still have a long way to go, but I feel like if I, over the past 20 years, I've seen more and more people that would never quote unquote, get in on wellness now getting in on wellness because there is less, there are less gatekeepers to this information. Absolutely. And there are more conversations like this, right? Yeah. There was a time when we would have these conversations and someone would say something you know, just that is based in evidence and people would say, oh, absolutely not, because you're the only one saying it. However, guess what? Now there's an entire group of us saying it. It's like, oh, well, that does make a little bit of sense. Yeah, exactly. Something that I heard you talk about were, okay, I want to quote you specifically. You said, I want readers to understand that many of the foods that may be associated with historically marginalized groups are a distant cousin of the original versions. Can you talk about that? Like, foods that are maybe are have all these ingredients that are actually feeding health problems, but they are sort of distant cousins of something original. Absolutely. So I'll use an example of something that is made throughout uh, Trinidad and Tobago, and it's called macaroni pie. Macaroni pie is, yes, it's a pie made with macaroni. My aunts, in fact, I remember my grandfather's sister, Auntie Baby, Tanti Baby, who would make macaroni pie. And the way that she made it was with pimento and carrot and bell pepper and like a whole bunch of veggies and onion and garlic and seasoning. And then you bake it in the oven 
and you enjoy it. Now, many people are like, well, wait a second. How does that fit into like a healthy pattern of eating? She wasn't making this every single night, right? This was special occasions. This took lots of time to make because it was the pasta, you know what I mean, that she had to do from scratch and the vegetables that she was processing and the seasoning and the garlic. So that's one thing to remember. The other thing is it wasn't like you could just go to any corner store and get that all the time. Even when we think of things like fried chicken, right? People associate fried chicken with the Black American South. And yes, you know, fried chicken was something that was generally made, especially when, you know, hens needed to quote unquote retire. They were fried because the meat was a little bit tougher. So that was a way of processing it. But again, you know, this was hens that had to retire and people weren't eating it every single day. I'm so careful when I have these conversations because, again, I recognize that there are some neighborhoods where these are the only choices. And I'm not shaming people for eating what's available to them. But what I'm saying is that the systems that are in place are perpetuating the eating of those very fast foods that have nothing to do with the original and are made in ways that are really subpar, right? And they're being eaten every single day. Or more, you know what I mean? I mean, I do see people and I have patients who are using fast foods as the way that they get the majority of their food. So it's not that it's showing up once in a while, it's showing up all the time. And if that's the consistent pattern of eating, we're talking about metabolic dysfunction. There's no way around it, right? And so when I say that these foods are the distant cousins, I mean that they have been turned into something that is extra sugary, extra salty, extra fatty, very palatable, right? And takes no time to actually get into your hands and no time to consume. Mm -hmm. Sexual wellness is an important part to every human being under the sun. And one way to optimize and support your sexual wellness is Dipsy. And Dipsy has been a game changer for many of our patients. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. You've never heard celebrities like this before. Listen to stories voiced by Sarunas J. Jackson, ER Fightmaster, and Luke Cook. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy stories you can actually read. What my patients have been loving on Dipsy is something that they call the deep dive. You can actually get education around sexual wellness, like learning if shame is affecting your sex life or learning about low libido and the different underlying causes of low libido. So this is a great way to, again, optimize your sexual wellness. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash willcole. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash Will Cole. That's dipsystories.com slash Will Cole. I'd like to talk about the concept and what's going on when you mentioned the term food apartheid. Can you talk about what's going on? Let's start with the racials of food apartheid, but I'd also love to talk about 
socioeconomic side of food apartheid when it comes to food deserts, both rural food deserts and urban food deserts. I know that's a lot to unpack. So could you just educate us here on what is going on in our country and how there's so much inequity when it comes to access to healthy and whole foods? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, you know, it's so funny for a long time, people thought they said, are you vegan? And I was like, no, actually, I'm not vegan. (laughs) I actually eat everything. It's just that I eat so many plants. Right. Like I wake up and I'm like, I just need a vegetable. And one of my dear friends, Will, made fun of me the other day. We were (laughs) were doing like hot and cold together. And of course, you know, I drank more water. And she was like, I've never seen anyone just like who's like, I just need a vegetable and I need water. She's like, you're really unusual. (laughs) (laughs) But so I, I preface this conversation with the fact that I'm really passionate about plants. And so when I have this, when I think about this, I really see it as like assault on human life. And when we talk about food apartheid, what we're really talking about is the intentional removal of access of safe, affordable, nutritious foods in communities that are not only low income, but also communities of color. And I use that larger definition, and then I can stratify it out and talk about it in rural areas as well as urban areas. Now, I am like, this is an area that I'm still continuing to research, but I do know that, for example, people, indigenous people who are living on reservations experience significant, significant disadvantage because they are even more dependent on government subsidies and the subsidies do not fund fresh foods. They also don't fund foods that are culturally relevant for people who are living on reservation. And what ends up happening is that there in those areas, we see a lot of fast and processed food intake. And I want to be careful. And I know when people are like, oh, processed food, all foods processed. I really mean the fast convenience foods, the microwavable items that have an abundance of added sugar, salts, and fats. And so when I'm talking about that, that's what I'm saying. And I'm not saying it with judgment. I'm saying it just as this is what's readily accessible and that's problematic. When we look in urban areas, what we actually see is it actually tends to line up, I mean, similar to some rural areas as well, with not only access to food, but access to healthcare and wellness services. So if you start to look in the neighborhoods where there are no full service grocery stores or they've been removed intentionally, what you see is liquor stores, you see dollar stores, you see smoke shops, You see the places where people can play lotto or gamble, like an abundance of those. And smoke shops, lotto, gambling, uh, you know what I mean, liquor stores are in direct opposition with wellness-related behaviors, Mm -hmm. right? All of those things breed more depression, more mental instability, more physical disability. They just do. If you're drinking more addiction, right? Substance dependence. If you're drinking a fifth of anything every single day, your body's in crisis. There's Mm -hmm. no way to get around that. And so many of these neighborhoods get flooded, right? Because they have been deemed to be not valuable because the median income is $24,000 or below. And so there's no, you know, store that wants to go there, right? Because they're saying this is not a valuable place. Then you also see that there's, they're not, it's fascinating. I've looked around New York, particularly, this is what comes to mind. You don't see 
hospital centers, what you see is kind of urgent cares. Urgent cares serve their part. However, urgent care is not primary care. Urgent care is in an emergent situation. And if you're fully dependent on emergency services, there's no follow through. If you have diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and you're having an adverse event and you're going to urgent care, well, who's doing your follow-up? And then next to you, you can have whatever food that's going to exacerbate your condition. Now we're talking about a cycle. We don't see playgrounds at work. We see playgrounds that, with basketball hoops that have no nets, broken equipment. Then you can't go and you can't move your body. Sometimes people are over-policed. They feel unsafe outside, so then they don't want to go outside. It's this terrible cycle that is not just about food and nutrition, but it's about all of the things that you talk about, Will, when you're talking about, you know, surrounding yourself by people who are going to support you in a positive way forward. If we're all being pulled down and it feels hopeless in the area, then how do you find hope? How do you dream or vision yourself to be a person who can engage in life-preserving, life-elongating behaviors? Mm -hmm. Very well said. And I'm thinking of myself, like I live in Western Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh, both in the city, I see the urban food deserts where people don't have access to cars that they're, and within walking distance, they have super, like a ga gas station, 7-Eleven yes. type things. They have fast food restaurants, and that's basically it for the most part. And then you talk, look, we're closer to where I live, rural food deserts were the same thing. There's no walking distance and there's just lots of fast food restaurants. And that's right. really what it is. What do you say to somebody? I mean, what do you have any pro tips, tricks, ways that people can start to eat healthy that live in food deserts or don't have an air one market. If you're in LA, don't have a whole foods right down or an organic market, whatever. Any tips for, for many of us that are in that situation and, or just people looking to eat healthily, affordably in general, no matter where they're at. Absolutely. So this one is from Chef JJ, who is the owner and founder of Field Trip in New York. He said something that I thought was awesome. So we're one of his restaurants is in Harlem. You know, he's got these bowls. There's like filled with greens, kale, dandelion greens, black rice, like all delicious things, right? And the street is like littered with, I don't even want to name the places. <laughs> He said he goes to the grocery store across the street and he says, where's the kale? Where's the Swiss chard? Where are the collards? People right across the street are paying money for that. You guys should really carry that. And every time the manager sees him coming, he's like, oh, no. But he goes once a week and he says that. And that's something that I used to tell patients when I was running a food and nutrition program in Brooklyn. Go into your bodega, say, you know, are there any, you know, long kind of shelf life pieces of produce that you can carry apples bananas oranges right that's a low lift those are also fairly palatable for many people provided that there's not an allergy sensitivity or dislike right but they're fairly palatable and they are on the lower cost side so a case of those people can buy them and if they're fairly priced awesome the other thing that i say to people when you know dollar stores gas station kind of supermarkets, mini marts, dekas are it for you. And that's what's accessible. Look at the single ingredient items, eggs, <laughs> right? You can do amazing things with eggs, even in a microwave, frozen vegetables, right? If you're looking for frozen broccoli, 
frozen broccoli, and that's what the ingredient list should say. There, there are from time to time, and I have gone into a few dollar stores just to see what they have. There are items that are kind of like, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like, you know, TJ Maxx gets like the cast off of designer goods. It's yeah. like the dollar stores from time to time will have items that are like not moving well and are actually incredible. And so I found some like whole grain cereal products that don't have added sugar. I've also found some nut butters that are quote unquote natural. And when you flip it over, it actually is just like peanuts or almonds or whatever. And it's at a lower price. And this is a tip that I learned from a chef friend of mine, because many of those stores are like ramen abundant. And usually we tell people, watch out for the ramen because of the sodium content. So two things, you can rinse the noodles to cut the sodium content and then don't use the flavor packet, which will cut the sodium content by like 75%. Toss in some frozen veggies, you know, one or two. If you eat animal proteins, add the animal protein of your choice. And now you have a meal that maybe costs $6 to put together, but can serve four to six people. And we've modified it based on what's there. Interestingly, in, this, in the U.S., we don't really like crack eggs into soup, but that goes really nicely with ramen, great source of protein if you eat uh, dairy products. So things like that, I, I like to see people doing oats. I've seen plain oats in many of those places. Uh, you can do tons with oats. If you have a blender, if you have something that you can pound, you can make your own flour. There, I mean, it depends also, too, on how much time you have. And then I really do say, and I've said this to patients, read those nutrition facts labels, mm-hmm. actually pick up the products and compare them. If you're thinking about sodium content, choose the one that has less sodium and then try to round it out with frozen vegetables or something else, right? Because A, those frozen dinners are not, <laughs> they're not going to sustain a person, but do your best with what you have. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, the key is to become a consumer who can say, listen, I'm going to take 10 minutes. I'm going to stand here and get to know in these freezer cabinets, like what's the best choice given what is in front of me? And then what can I add to it to further support my health? And most often it will be a plant. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And something that I see patients do sometimes and we're when we're curating food protocols for them is the batch cook and soups and stews, things that can go along way. And I know you have some amazing recipes in the book, both soups and stews and and other dishes as well. Can we go through what a day in the life of exploring our roots looks like? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I know you have, so, you have 80 plus recipes, I think, in the book, but can you pick some of your favorites and like what a day in the life looks like? And maybe can we highlight the culture behind it as well? Totally. So I'll start with breakfast and... I'm trying to think. I'm like, okay, what recipes am I allowed to talk about? <laughs> so, okay, I'll start with breakfast and a hot. So we have a really incredible oatmeal and that one is giving like a taste or familiarity of India. We're using some turmeric in there. And so, so some of those flavors, interestingly enough, there was migration from India to parts of the Caribbean. So like something like that might also show up in, you know, uh, Trinidad, Tobago, Guyana with similar flavors. But this one was like taste of India. So that's like 
a breakfast. And then you can Lovely. add really, I'd say whatever piece, you know, fresh fruit you'd like to the top or even frozen fruit that's been cooked down. And then for lunch, one of my favorites is Itel stew. I spent a lot of time in Jamaica when I was a kid. My family's not Jamaican, but that's where we were going. <laughs> we were like, stay- it's so interesting. We were staying on this property for years. We'd go back that had no power, which also meant cold showers if it was the end of the day, but warm showers in the morning because they'd been heated up by the sun. And this is of my mother's like own volition. Like she was so, they were both so into this. They were like, this is what we're going to do. And I was like, okay, I had no choice. Uh, All my friends were like, you know, I went to X place and I was like, yeah, I was in Jamaica in a hut because that's what my mom wanted to do. What part of the island? Where were you at? Where was this? So this was in St. Elizabeth. And it was actually incredible. It was this place called Itel Rest. And it was run by these two Rastafarian, a couple, Jean and Frankie. And they built these beautiful wood, like, you know, kind of wood cabins. And it was intentional, like no power. And then they also had a rule, no animal proteins. And so, and then there were all these gorgeous trees, like pomegranates, rough skin, lemon, lime on the property. And it was it was like far from the ocean and I would go there and we would just, I would like hang out with all the local kids. I was walking barefoot, night walks, swimming in the ocean, like, you know, year after year. And it's so interesting. Well, I didn't mean to tell you this story, but that was actually when I became vegetarian because mm. I was vegetarian when I was younger. We had this huge party for my birthday and we had a goat and it fed everyone. And I came back to the U.S. and I was like, something's really wrong with our food system. I was like, this is not it. You know, this mm-hmm. one goat was so, it was so respectfully handled. And I, I'm telling you, the party was like easily 150 people. And it was amazing. Multi-generational friends of mine, their grandpa, like DJ, like really fun. And then I got back and I was like, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. I was like, what are we doing? So, yeah, I spent a lot of time in St. Elizabeth. I made great friends there. And that I tell Stu is inspired by that place. And it's just packed with vegetables. It's like every vegetable. And if you don't have the vegetables that are in the recipe, you can use the vegetables that you like. And it's wonderful flavor. And it's just cooked over time. I love it. I love it. So we have our breakfast. We have our lunch. What's dinner look like? So dinner, I mean, I would, maybe we could do, there's a really nice recipe with rice grits and rice grits are basically like the broken off bits of rice and they're kind of like, like grits, but it's actually from rice. And it is with a little bit of crab and homemade chili sauce. And so I would do that because I do love seafood and that's for the people who want to have some animal protein. Love it. I love it. And there's so many recipes for people to pick from as well. You mentioned, I mean, you mentioned that story when you were younger, becoming a vegetarian and your own health evolution. Are you, you're, you're, are you a vegetarian still? Or what, what did that evolution look like becoming, you mentioned not being a vegan anymore, but what's that look like and that evolution for you personally? So it's so funny because like, I rarely talk about like, 
<laughs> like you. when I eat, I know. <laughs> you like, talk I, about you. Right? Now's the time. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so it's interesting. I actually stopped eating meat when I was pregnant. And I remember being in Switzerland and walking through, they had all, in the summertime, there were all of these outdoor fairs and people were just constantly grilling meat. <laughs> I was like, what? And I was pregnant with my son. And I'll never forget like going to this restaurant with my husband and his family and sitting down and being like, I really want to eat meat. And they're like, are you sure? And I was like, I do. I didn't actually end up eating meat that summer. And it was when I came back to the U.S. that I said, all right, like I really want to eat meat. And it was it was a very intentional choice. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to this one place and having like a grass fed piece of meat. I was completely fine and I thought it was delicious. And then I just like went back to eating meat. It's interesting, well, because it was like, I thought it was going to be more eventful and it was completely uneventful. And I can go days even now without having animal proteins. I mean, like I walked into this Japanese market on Sunday and was in love with every single green vegetable that I saw and filled my cart with them, came home. I was like really excited to cook. And I did this dish that was pea shoots, yu choy, Chinese broccoli, black and white sesame seeds, garlic. I didn't have sesame oil, so I did sesame seeds, toasted garlic, avocado oil, and everyone in my family was like, what is this? I was like, I know, (laughs) you know? So it's like, even though I do eat animal proteins, like there can be many days where I'm super excited about the plants that are on my plate and I get Mm -hmm. everyone else in the house, like amped about it and come up with something that's really simple. Right. Mm -hmm. And sweet. Yeah. Amazing. And the book has so many different vegan, vegetarian, and omnivore recipes. So it's really something for everybody there, which I really love. And like you said, you can eat intuitively, not every meal. If you are omnivore, not every meal has to be omnivore. You can have this explore plant foods. And for people, I and I see patients that are like this, where they're eating one way, right? Maybe it's vegan, maybe it's vegetarianism, because they think, well, that's the healthy way. But really, like you said, like check in with your body. What's right. intuitively where, what what is your body craving? What does your body need at this point? And what serves you today isn't necessarily what you're gonna have to do forever and ever in your life. Oh Um, yes, say that again. That is so, (laughs) like that was just like a gem and you were like, and then you took a breath one more time. Well, that's so true. (laughs) Thank you. It's okay to pivot. People feel like they're a failure when they pivot. And you know, it's like Maya Angelou said, right? When you know better, you do you do better. And it's okay to learn different things. Like, oh, wow, I thought that was okay for me. You can honor that, but just learn different things about yourself or about nutrition or about food, you know? Yeah. Oh, so good. So good. As you know, the podcast is called The Art of Being Well. This is your art of being well. This is Maya's art of being well. I want to pick your brain of different things within wellness. First question is, what's the worst tasting the absolute most horrible, worst tasting food that you'll still eat because it's so good for you. You know the health science behind it, but it still tastes freaking disgusting. Okay, so I do not like spaghetti squash. Interestingly enough, I actually don't eat it. I mean, I think maybe once, like if I'm at someone's home, because I'm not, I, I don't know, that's like I grew up that way. So I'm like, sure, I'll taste it. No, no to the spaghetti squash. That's, I don't love spaghetti squash either. It is a great veggie 
noodle alternative, but yeah, I'm not a super fan of it, but some people love it. Yeah. I have patients who are like, it was delicious. I had it like every day last week and I'm like, yes, <laughs> go, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Ideally, like out of any vacation in the world, what is your dream vacation? Oh my goodness. Okay. So I'm going to Iceland on Friday and I'm pretty sure that, I mean, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, but I, <laughs> I listen, I love the, a mountaintop. I, and I love like a really heavy duty hike up a mountaintop and then to be in like a glacial pool or something like that. I've never been to Iceland. Like what's, what are some top things that you recommend if one were to go to Iceland? Well, this will be my first trip, but okay. I am looking forward to swimming between the plate tectonics. And then I'm also really looking forward to ice hiking and also taking advantage of the public baths, the hot, and then dipping into the ocean for hot, cold. Love that. We make patients do it. You're doing it the, the OG way. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. That's right. <laughs> what are two supplements that have been the biggest game changers or helpful tools for you personally? Oh my goodness. Okay. Vitamin D 100%. I was vitamin D deficient, you know, dark skin living in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. um, no, even though I go outside every single day. So vitamin D number one, and I would say number two, probably like magnesium. I've had to work for my blood pressure since having my daughter because I had gestational hypertension, um, not pre preeclampsia, but gestational hypertension. And it's like, I mean, I, you know, like I go, I run, I do all the things. Everybody knows that I'm like super salt conscious, but magnesium has been the other like major cardiovascular support for me. Love that. What is one wellness myth that you would like to dispel once and for all? Mm -hmm. Oh, here's one that you must shop the perimeter of the grocery store in order to have access to good food. Number one, not every grocery store is set up the same, right? And number two, there are plenty of incredible things. Hello, dry beans in the center of the grocery store. I love that. That's very, you're right. You're right. And that is such a cliche thing for people within wellness for us to say. Yes. <laughs> it's like, well, every supermarket is different. And there's so many <laughs> exceptions to that rule for sure. Do you think we're better or worse off with social media? Such a good question. I actually think when used in moderation intentionally and taking advantage of your cell phone's shutdown prompts, it can be helpful. <laughs> and not overriding those <laughs> shutdown prompts that you put on for yourself. Seriously, seriously. I mean, I actually also do think after working with the pediatric population that there needs to be some kind of disclaimer out there for like younger folks. Because like my daughter, who is nine, she has friends that are all up on TikTok. Now I'm mm -hmm. momming all of a sudden. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, and it's like, and my daughter's not. And she doesn't have social media. And she always says, like, she's like, if I don't know about it, then I can't actually be in the conversation. And I'm like, she's like, and I don't actually care about it. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. I mean, it's so true. I My kids are 16 and 13 at this moment of recording. 
And my son just got social media at 16 years old and I waited as long as I could. And I probably could have waited a little bit longer, but I thought, you know what? He has to learn how to navigate this <laughs> before I lose, you know, complete yes. his complete independence. But there's no rule book or handbook for this, this new age that we're living in. Like we didn't grow up like this, but it is unreal to see the little kids that are on these platforms with really little and I, I sound like such an old, old, old dad too to talk about this, but it's a problem. It's a problem. It is. It is. And everybody agrees. That's the thing that's so wild about it is that like, there's not, no one ever said like, yeah, that's fine for that, you know, four-year-old to be on the phone all the time. Everyone's like, it's destroying their synapses. You know what I mean? Like yeah. no one is like, oh, this is great. But yet we, we engage in it. So I do think, you know, when used intentionally healthy and really like shut it off turn it off at night like all the things that you say like if you're scrolling you i love you say this well you're like you know if you're looking at something on social media and it's making you feel bad about yourself unfollow stop yeah yeah mute it unfollow it turn off like i mean i'm seeing patients online 10 hours a day i have all my notifications silenced i couldn't imagine even that sort of buzzing that happens on everybody's phones it just constantly pulls me yep. out of the present moment raises anxiety and cortisol like oh i have to be on call all the time to all these apps it's really not good for our our parasympathetic nervous system no, for sure not at all not at all not at all if you had to eat or could only eat one food for the rest of your life for survival you're talking about nutrient density you're stuck on an island where, what are you eating? Well, this is just for you. <laughs> Lobster. I love it. I love that you had that right off screen. <laughs> Why? Why did you have that? Is that a prop? <laughs> my son made it for me. It's like, and so I just have a clay lobster on my I, desk at I all times. I love it. I love it. I mean, hey, mom life. Parent life. Literally. That's literally. amazing. So yeah. lobster would be your answer? Yeah. I mean, lobster, and I really, I wanted to say like some plant, but I know that I need the protein. And especially as a woman of my age, I really need the protein. But if I could get a second, then it would probably be like lobster and dandelion greens. I love it. Some some liver, some bitter, bitter greens. Liver exactly. <laughs> exactly. I love it. <laughs> Next question. What's your favorite restaurant in the world? And when you're there, what do you order? Oh my gosh. Okay. My favorite restaurant in the world. That's really hard because I love food so much. However, what I can say is there is a restaurant that I look forward to going whenever I travel back to the Caribbean in Tobago on the beach, there's this set of shops where you can go and in one place you can get curry crab and dumpling and the other you can get like callaloo, which is like a green veggie dish and like pumpkin and like veggie rice. And so I look forward always to going back to this spot in Pigeon Point and getting food from there. Love that. What's a spiritual, or maybe I should say it this way, do you have a spiritual or mindfulness practice that really has helped you a lot? So it's interesting. There is this beautiful church that I was attending in Brooklyn, Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian. And we had a minister who was just incredible and very steeped in like social justice and community. And my goodness, I enjoyed going to church every single Sunday and just being there. When he actually left the congregation, it was around COVID. And I actually haven't been back since. I miss it desperately. And I think 
that, you know, alone in my time nature, I spend, a, I, I love outside. Well, mm-hmm. like when I tell you, I love outside Yeah. this, you know, crystal clear, cold day. I was like in the park. <laughs> I love it. I mean, that I, I'm always posting pictures of sunsets and sunrises and nature on my Instagram feed. And I call it God art because it really is like this church, right? For people, this yeah. temple, sacred space. And the research around forest bathing and, you know, Shinrin Yoku in Japanese, it's just, it's a, using nature as a meditation and as a medicine. It's, it's a easy, f- completely accessible, affordable tool, even if you don't have a lot of green space. And there's actually studies that show that even pictures of nature, even if you have zero nature where you're yes. at, even pictures can be beneficial for your health. Did you see this? Okay, this is very exciting. I'm getting a little excited. So apparently there are VR goggles that are used in some medical settings that are pictures of nature. And the idea is to help calm patients down before procedures. Love that. That's what we need more of. That's what we need more of. What's the weirdest wellness thing that you're willing to admit on a podcast that you've done? Weirdest wellness thing that I'm willing to admit on the podcast that I've done. And weird is relative. We we know that. Yeah, it may not be that weird. (laughs) You know, that's the thing is I don't know that I've done anything that's that strange. I mean, back in the day, eating liver, people were like, "Oh, now everyone's like on board with it." I mean, cod liver. I grew up, you know, taking cod liver oil. Still give it to my kids. Um, So all the things that were like, oh, you know, I grew up Mm -hmm. eating like whole grain pasta before it was cool. You know, I lived Mm -hmm. in this house with these two like super radical lesbians who were like going to Moosewood Kitchen before it was like hip. So like everything that I did was weird. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like literally, like I remember being like 12 and going to a sweat lodge and my friends were like, where are you going? I was like, oh, I'm going with my mom to a silent retreat and then we're going to a sweat lodge. And they were like, yeah. Have fun. Wow. So you were doing Vipassanas as a little girl. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But you yeah. you just lived the weird from early days. <laughs> like, you know, like I had two moms at the time. It wasn't cool. Now everyone's like, that's awesome. So yeah, I, I live the weird. I love it. And again, it's so relative because I don't think it's weird at all, but I'm just thinking of like the average yes. American would probably. Exactly. Right. Exactly. What's your favorite way to increase energy levels? If someone's struggling with like laws and energy, some fatigue, that PM slump of energy that so many people struggle with, what's, what are some pro tips? So my pro tip is actually what I find a lot of my patients do is engage in meal skipping. It's fascinating. I can, I, to this day, I am constantly telling people like, if you skip meals, and you're not nourishing yourself consistently, guaranteed 4 p.m., you're going to be saying like, I'm looking for whatever carbohydrate-rich thing is going to feed my brain. So number one, I we always talk about taking a look at the full day and kind of what does that look like. I also talk a lot about sleep architecture and hygiene and substance use, like especially regular substance use. So those are three things that I find, you know, being aware of how much alcohol you're consuming, when you're consuming it, also really being intentional about sleep. A dear colleague of mine who is a sleep doctor (laughs) reminded me that not only is it a biological need, it's not something that like we absolutely know how to do anymore. Mm -hmm. So you really have to set yourself up for it. Um, And then the other thing is really taking a look at the day in terms of kind of what are your behaviors? Like, are you eating? Like how often are you on screens? Like, are you on your computer? Like right up until you're going to bed? Well, 
good luck. You're going to be wound up. We're going to have to mm -hmm. calm you down. Mm -hmm. Love that. Do you ever go to Starbucks? And if you go to Starbucks, what is your Starbucks order? The hibiscus tea unsweetened. <laughs> Love it. No, see, I, I go, I will do the teas. I get normally get the green or black tea with light ice and no water because I don't want them oh. to dilute that. So unless you like the watered down tea, but for me, you can get the more concentrated, potent tea with because they cut it with water, which I, they to do. me- I usually ask for two bags. I am that person. I'm like, can I have two bags, please? Okay, so you're doing the hot hibiscus tea. Yes, exactly. Got not the passion tea. That's exactly right. Got it, got it. I was a barista in college, so I'm like always living out my college years. I, had I never, it. it was the peak of my career, I was barista life. Next question, if you could only use one skincare product for the rest of your life, what would that skincare, skincare product be? Ooh. Well, it definitely has to be some kind of moisture. I'm super dry. Like for the quantity of water that I drink, I am super dry. So for sure, some kind of moisture. I'm using currently on my face, my friend, Dr. Whitney Bowe's microbiome yes. nourishing cream. So I good, love right? it. Shout out so to good. Dr. Bowe. She's been yeah. on the podcast that I love that stuff. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> it's glowing. You got the bow glow. Bow glow. <laughs> I love it. Last question, my friend. What is a book that you've read in the last year? that has been the biggest, just like, aha, wow. Like I never thought about that or got you thinking in, in, a, in a fresh new way. It could be it fiction or nonfiction. So it's actually completely outside of my area of practice. It's a series of essays edited by Alice Wong and it's Disability Visibility. And the book dives into all the different ways that people are differently abled. And it's from the person's perspective, the essays written. And some of the disabilities are invisible and some of them are visible. And it was amazing to read. I love that. We'll put all of this in the show notes, the things that we're talking about today. My friend, this has been such a rich conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Like, Where can people get the book? Where can people learn about your work? all the things. Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh my goodness, I love this. I also can't wait to have a meal with you off topic. Let's um, do it. Yeah, let's let's make it happen. You can find Eating From Our Roots everywhere that books are sold. It's published by Penguin Random House and Group Press. You can find me across social at Maya Feller RD. That's that. My friend, thank <laughs> you so much. We'll talk soon. Let's get that meal. Yes, let's get that meal. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back every Monday and Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon.
Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.